Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. Hello everyone and welcome back to Those Aren't Pillows, the podcast celebrating everything funny in film. I hope you are very well. As ever on the podcast, I have a guest. She's a film critic. She's a writer. She has a new book out, which is fantastic, although I haven't started reading it yet. But that's, I should have read it before because I thought, said, uh, I can't remember who it was. I was talking to somebody and said you might quiz me on it, but we can talk about <laughs> that another day. It is the lovely Helen O'Hara. How are you? Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well. There will be no you. quiz. No quiz. No quiz. <laughs> I think I can't remember who it was I was talking to. I was editing one of them yesterday. And they, they had to, I kind of took it out because A, it had no kind of thing to the the film we were talking about but also the episode run quite long so I was just to take it out I thought I'd mention it the fact that I thought you might go so Scott you've read you've, I saw you bought my book go to page 25 <laughs> yeah it's kind of been weird that way because I, I keep actually like so I, I go running most mornings and I run past a waterstones near my house and I'm always kind of thinking well you know I know you know I know they're not obviously open but they're maybe updating the window and I keep looking in the window hopefully going maybe it'll be in the window and of course it isn't because if they are in there which they sometimes are I think they're sending out orders they're not you know faffing about with the window display so um so yeah that that side of things has been a bit of a shame but it's been really it's been really lovely I have to I can't really complain because people have been actually reading it anyway online and getting hold of it and uh, I have been overcoming my natural aversion to self-promotion and tweeting about it what feels like relentlessly what my publisher tells me is not enough so somewhere in between the two uh and yeah it's been it's been okay so far so I hope people continue to enjoy it I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop really now now we've picked two films and uh yeah we're gonna have a little chat about them so we've discussed a lot of comedies so far on the podcast some silly some a bit knowing some a bit smart some a bit satirical but we're starting on the silly end of the spectrum for this first film we're going to talk about we have talked about one of the films that these people have made already so we thought we'd talk about Mm -hmm. another one why not we're going to go back to 1984 (laughs) this is so before we talk in here is a quick clip from the film released in 1984 and it is a comedy classic that began quite the relationship between three filmmakers I think we're at the East German checkpoint better have our passports ready now remember Nick this is the first time rock music has ever been allowed in this country so you're not just a performer you're an ambassador representing America and above all remember we've got to play by their rules Martin, I've been practicing. That is a clip from 1984's Top Secret, written Oxenfeld. and directed by ZAZ. You may what does that mean? David Tucker. Is your daughter David 18? Tucker. Also mentioned Martin Burke. And this was the second film that these guys made together. I think it's the second film they made, isn't it? Police Squad uh, is the... They made Police Squad as well as Airplane, which they made in 17... It was no. Kentucky Fried Chicken before Airplane. That's the other one. Yes, yes. Kentucky Fried history. Movie, not Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they are, yeah. <laughs> they, are, they are the equivalent of Michael Keaton and the founder. They they are the Kentucky Fried Chicken guys. Kentucky Fried Movie, yes. Uh, this was the other movie that they made and released in 1984, which seems such... I can't believe it's been that long that this film's been released. It's almost as old as me. And we've talked about so many modern films on the podcast. Nice to go back to a time when uh, films in general were very, very different and uh, comedy films were kind of an event, whereas they're not quite as much anymore sense of 
you know, when I was a, we talked about this on the podcast a lot, when I was a teenager, yeah. you know, Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler, Will Smith, et cetera, et cetera, Robin Williams making $100 million Billy comedies, but times change, times change. Um, so when, when did you see this for the first time? Because uh, I'm not going to be a, a rude gentleman and ask your age, but when did you, <laughs> uh, when did you, when did you see this for the first time? Was this something you saw in your youth or did you, over mm. the course of the years, kind of get sucked into it as it were? I mean, well, I'm not old enough to have seen it in cinemas for sure. I don't know when I saw it though. I imagine I saw it at some point in my teens, but I honestly couldn't swear to that. It might have been college. I have a friend who was a major, major Zaz fan, really, really loved their films. So it could have been him that showed it to me, but I think I'd already seen it at least once. I think that was just the point where we watched it over and over again and, you know, got to the point where we could reel off all the lines I know a little German he's over there you know um <laughs> and and yeah I I I just love it it's so absurd it's so crazy and the jokes are so silly but they're so on point I'd love it yes they are I mean I think I this this is kind of their I don't want to say their lost film but it's the film that a lot of people obviously for some people it comes with the premature that it was a bit of a flop when it came out when actually it kind of when you look back in history it kind of wasn't it kind of did well it just got kind of swallowed by lots of other things that are out around the yeah. same time and whatever but yeah I think I for me I think I would have seen I think I pretty much saw Naked Gun first <laughs> and I would have said I think I saw Airplane after seeing Naked Gun and at some point again this is going back into my same story where my uncle and my granddad had such a great video collection they had those video library cases with numbers on and a little list saying oh, you know, amazing. oh number one was Papillon I always remember that number one was always Papillon you go for the list and every 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 sort of month he'd cross one out and have to write something else because he taped over the one before and I think I would have seen Airplane and Naked Gun through them but Top Secret I, I think I saw much later I would have been mm. at least at least a, I would say a good decade after the film would come out but I wasn't aware of it very much I guess it's kind of the the thing with the movie isn't it that it's there's a lot of people that still don't know too much about it even though it's a real Kind of classic and helped to kind of set the standard for you know uh the naked gun and then the other movies and then we talked about this before about going into the terrible ape movie epic movie yeah kind of space spoof movies that we don't need to give air time to <laughs> no no they are they are not as good but this one is much closer to the airplane model i think it's just so it's kind of riffing on elvis movies and mm. war movies and uh, Beach Boys music and uh, spy movies and Cold War movies. And it's very much, I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. So you've got a sort of Beach Boys singing Elvis type played by Val Kilmer heading to East Germany, which is genuinely pretty much run by commie Nazis, <laughs> you know, because uh, they're very, very Nazi-esque, even if they're meant to be communists and uh, gets himself caught up in a sort of spy plot and has to save the day by saving a kidnapped scientist, of course, it's always a kidnapped scientist, but just with so many random asides and they fall in with the French resistance who are for some reason operating in East Germany in the 1960s, because sure, I guess, are they? Right, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it's fantastically absurd, but that's, they just don't bother explaining how they're getting to play with all these tropes. I think that's the great thing about it. They, they wanted to, you know, tell a joke about the French resistance. So they just chuck it in there and, and don't bother 
trying to come up with some ridiculous you know backstory and mythology about why it makes sense they're just like no it doesn't doesn't make any sense and we're doing it anyway so yeah my, my funniest joke of the film actually is nothing to do with all those things uh, and i remember laughing so loud when i heard it for the first time it's the joke where he's telling um he's telling val kilmer uh he spoke to the u.s ambassador and he spoke to the german as for this and that and he can't do anything and he's he's stuck because and i just can't satisfy my wife i can't bring my wife to climax and val kilmer sort of <laughs> does that look where he's like wait that's where you went with that that's what's funny is i just i can't that's where that sentence was ending yeah that's that's the joke i i it doesn't fail you know sometimes you watch comedy films and you still kind of laugh along you know blah, blah, blah. but there's always one joke still no matter how many times you see it, it tickles you like the glass case of emotion in anchorman it just slays me every single time every mm -hmm. single time <laughs> um, i can't get enough and that's mine with top with uh, top secret that is the joke because it's just going off on a tangent you just think oh he's trying so hard to you know to be the good guy and get us out and all that kind of stuff and then he talks about his wife climax oh oh yes we're watching a yep. zed awesome. movie i forgot i forgot that for for a few seconds uh one thing i was going to mention i did a little wikipedia search and you mentioned there about the kind of structure of the film because it's very there isn't really a point to it if you like mm. whereas you know airplane is based on a airplane is an actual movie in yeah, many yeah. respects and naked gun is at least about policemen you know there's a there's mm. a there's a thing to be foiled you know but they, David Zucker said of uh, Top Secret, it's very, very funny, but really isn't a good movie. It really didn't have a plot of real characters or real structure. The lesson we took from Airplane was just fill up the 90 minutes with jokes and you have a movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they even admit it to themselves that they just, it's, it's almost like uh, the equivalent of throwing stuff at a, at a wall and seeing what sticks, but most of their stuff sticks and they just think, well, it's all over the place, but it doesn't matter, it'll be, it'll be funny. Be you know, funny. it worked for Jackson Pollock. Do you know what I mean? So, like, hey, fine. Hey, <laughs> he's, he's quite successful, isn't he? He had Ed, Ed Harris play him in a movie. That's when he's made it. Made it. That's what it is. Um, but also, I never, I think the other thing that would always, I remember about the film is the fact I probably saw it after I was a teenager. In fact, this is probably true. I'm thinking mm -hmm. that when I was a teenager, Al Kilmer was Batman. Yeah. That was probably, and he was in Willow. So those two movies oh, obviously have a big, big, I hate to say influence because that's not true, but they had a big impression on me, shall I say, when I was a, mm. I was a kid, which Willow has for a lot of people. And the same with I Batman Forever. Uh, Willow is fantastic. I can't, mm. I, you know, I'm very sceptical about what they do with this TV show, but, you know, we'll I'm, hopeful, what I'm hopeful. Skept skeptical yet hopeful. That's what I would say. Yeah, you never know. Uh, this, 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 this talk at the moment is coming to America 2's come out, you know, about, how long is too long to wait to do a sequel? Mm. And sometimes, you know, in coming to America's case, it wasn't that bad of an idea to wait that long. It kind of works to it to whereas with something like that. Yeah. Just don't do it. Um, yeah, my, <laughs> my link would have been Val Kilmer, I think, because of Willow and then Batman. And something we just discussed off air before we came on, it only just clicked in our brains, that Michael Goff is also in this film. You remember mm. played Alfred in the four original Batman movies. Falcon obviously is Batman. Yet mm. so, somehow both of us misplaced that stat. <laughs> both in this week Never together. put that and together. Well <laughs> a, uh, maybe Michael Goff knew Val Kilmer when he was, you know, nice and not this <laughs> bad, bad person. But uh, I well, remember you. 
were you a Val, Val Kilmer fan at all? Did you, did you is oh, this yeah. someone you knew about? Because of obviously Willow and just Top Willow, Gun yeah, as well. it was Willow. I mean, Top Gun, yes, as well, but mostly Willow. I didn't love him in Top Gun, nobody loves him in Top Gun. He's mm. Iceman, he's a dick. Um, but in Willow, he's just completely madly charming and very funny. I think this and Willow and something more recent like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, mm. you know, Val Kilmer was one of the great wasted comedy talents where he had he has such a gift for comedy and I don't think that enough directors ever really did that with him. And maybe it wasn't work what he was really interested in because, you know, at least two of those were very early career films and maybe not where his true kind of heart lies. But um, he's really funny. He's really funny. And he really commits completely straight-faced to all of this, you know, to the singing, to the dancing, to the spy craft, to the just ludicrousness. You know, those scenes at the beginning on the train with his manager, when he's uh, painting what's happening outside the window and he's just painting a blur. <laughs> I mean, that's that's inspired. It's absolutely inspired. And he just delivers it really, really beautifully. Uh, so... And, and when he's singing her a love song, but it's also a, a you know department store jingle, it's amazing. Like it, it takes real skill to be able to, I think, deliver moments like that. And he's so good at it. Yeah, I think what uh, is the song uh, silly? Is it something silly? That's one of the songs yeah, that they sing. Yeah, um, it's kind of Are You Lonesome Tonight? But then it's sort of Are You Lonesome Tonight? Um, shop at Macy's and Be Mine Tonight or something like that. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it's and ridiculous. Is there another one where just the title of the song is something to do with silly or oh, I can't remember what it is now? There's Skeet Shooting, which is the kind of Beach Boys number. That's fantastic. Maybe it's that one. There's a yeah, few, that's there's the a few opening good, number. There's a few good hits in this movie. Set in the way for him to play Jim Morrison in the doors, I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> skeet <laughs> Surfing, not Skeet Shooting, but Skeet Surfing. Yeah, he's he's great in this. Yeah, really, really good. Singing and everything. Imagine the day where Oliver Stone passed him and people went to him. <laughs> with the guy... The guy that was in Top Secret, yes, that guy. I want, I want that guy. <laughs> <laughs> the guy that impersonated Elvis, Elvis kind of. That's I Jim think, I think about, right there. Yeah, I think they probably emphasized the the Iceman thing probably more by that point. But uh, it's a shame because yeah, you're right. They should have mentioned Top Secret. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do think that about Falcon. I, I agree with you on that. I think he is um, before. Obviously, yeah, there's been issues with him, and we only know from the outsiders probably what people say about what he was like on. Batman, Dr. Moreau and all the others in between where he was difficult but you know I think he was as you say it's, it was such a gifted performer and as comedy seemed to have the knack for that straight guy thing in that he could say something completely that's not supposed to be funny but if he says it the same way very I guess similar mm -hmm. to Leslie Nielsen where they get him to say these things because it will be funny even if that person doesn't quite understand why it will yeah. be funny and why I'm why am I saying this line in the way I would say something in Forbidden Planet, you know, that's, I always think with Leslie Nielsen, you know, saying something quite yeah. serious. Hence why I think, you know, the joke, I am serious, don't call me Shirley joke, works on so <laughs> many levels, because it's kind of knowing, isn't it? It's kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, Leslie Nielsen-ish. Uh, I saw him once in an airport, Leslie Nielsen. He was being wheeled out um, of a of a arrival gate while I was waiting for someone, and I sort of did a double take, and he just grinned and waved at me. I don't think anybody else necessarily knew it was him, but, yep. Did he grin, grin and wave at you because he'd met you before or just he was no, just not a, all. A no, nice, no, no. nice just, man? He just, I think he genuinely saw me sort of go, holy shit, that's Leslie Nielsen, probably out loud, even though I wasn't with anyone and, <laughs> and sort of clocked it and, you know, it's great. Probably the complete opposite to a lot of other people who would have just gone, oh. Oh, God. God's Bloody sake. People. <laughs> uh, yeah, I give a lot of credit to Val Kilmer for that. I think he's uh, in some of the in the right movies. He's been very, very good. I think Kiss Kiss Bang yeah. Bang is the last 
I guess obviously because of his health problems, he hasn't really done much since, yeah, has yeah. he? But I, it's nice that we have something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang as a last, well, not a last, but you know, the cast yeah. big, a more recent thing he did. Say. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. him and Downey Jr. in half, because you know everyone talks about Downey Jr. That was you know the little step of the Renaissance, if you like, of Downey Jr. before mm-hmm. Iron Man. But that movie doesn't work without Val Kilmer being Val Kilmer. It's just exactly two of them together. Are fantastic. There's an array of talent in this film and I just went through the list again and it's strange looking back in history because you look at the names and then you kind of look at them in modern day and you think oh my goodness this person was in this film so you get Omar Sharif mm-hmm. in this film Peter Cushing as the Swedish bookstore proprietor where if you've not <laughs> seen the sequence with the Swedish bookshop uh you must you know if you like David Lynch you know go and <laughs> go and watch where it all started <laughs> Maybe this is where David Lynch got his ideas from. Top secret. I you would know, absolutely. Head cannon. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, and also with the aforementioned Michael Goff. And also you get uh, Jim Carter, Downton mm-hmm. Abbey fame. From Downton Abbey, yeah, exactly. When I rewatch some of the clips, it's strange when you look at someone back in the history, because he looks young and I'm not saying he's not, uh, he's a lovely guy. I've met him a couple of times. He's a lovely, he's a lovely chap. Um, that. uh you kind of think to yourself, oh, the guy from Downton Abbey. And it's that strange <laughs> thing where we were talking about Yes Man the other day, how uh-huh. modern modern audiences would go back and watch a film and they'd probably watch something like Yes Man and go, wait, Bradley Cooper in this film? <laughs> the guy that sang with Lady Gaga is in this film. Oh my goodness, I've never seen it before. The same with Jim Carter. It's such a big audience, mm-hmm. Downton Abbey. I'd be surprised if people didn't watch this and go, wait, oh, hang well, on. Carter. And he <laughs> was, of course, deja vu. Have we they, not I was met literally before, about sorry. to say his character is deja vu, which is absolutely incredible. Um, they always manage to get ZAZ, no matter what, maybe not the biggest names in the world, but they always, their picks for all their characters and their cast is so on the money. Yeah. It's incredible. They're so, so good. And if you look at, I mean, the Naked Gun as well, there's so much amazing talent in there when you can get someone like Robert Goulet to play the bad guy. I'm, I'm on board. And, you, you know, and, yeah. um, and, you know, maybe. Well, OJ Simpson is quite funny. Let's not go. But um, it's a real array of talent in this movie, isn't it? It's not just kind of a. If you take it in the context of history, it's not a very well-known cast at all. It's all built on the concept more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think they were. um, Yeah, it's just this kind of series of almost skits and sketches. So you can get Peter Cushing or somebody like that because they're only coming in for a couple of days and doing one ridiculous scene and then and then going off again and you know I would imagine you know I'm sure that that Zaz were were pleased with and and you know concerned with this casting I also suspect that they probably spent as long figuring out how to have a man land on top of a statue of a giant pigeon do you know what I mean so they they had they they I guess being that there's three of them they can actually sort of take some time out and and figure out those kind of ridiculous like very high concept high um, high levels of commitment jokes as well as having these sort of kind of not quite celebrity cameos because it's not quite that exploitative maybe in the Peter Cushing case but or the Omar Sharif but but most of mostly it's just like let's get some cool character actors who can do this kind of thing and you know play play it fairly straight apart from all the ridiculousness uh, uh, that eye joke with Peter Cushing oh my God. never, never it's just absolutely it's one of those very strange kind of visual gags where you think surely someone's done this kind of this has been done so many times before this is not going to be funny etc etc but <laughs> I hadn't and don't call me Shirley I mean you know yeah and it's just oh 
just 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 brilliant and the whole thing of putting that uh sequence in it's in it's not it's not in it's not invert it's, it's in reverse isn't it it's not kind of inverted mm-hmm. it is in reverse yeah. to do something like that is so brave and bold in the sense that if you pitch that to somebody you'd be like i don't know why is that funny it's yeah. almost like they have to go and do it and then show you why it's funny for it to kind of work which i think is true of a lot of their stuff on paper probably doesn't seem particularly funny but then come the execution you're kind of like oh okay yeah yeah see see that but this is a strange one because i was just looking at the history of it and this this is just one of the reasons why maybe it kind of tanked in the first block tanked form as they maybe hope they perform was because around the same time there was two of the biggest comedies of the 80s released Mm -hmm. within a few weeks which was ghostbusters and gremlins now yeah I mean, that's just because you know, it's it's strange going back again, going back into into history about box office because a lot of people don't a lot of people don't remember how it used to be in the terms of that you'd have all these breakout films and they'd stay number one for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's so things are so kind of disposable that you only got to go a week or two weeks before something else comes out. But I like the kind of novelty of that. I like the the kind of history of the sense of. You had to people used to go back and see movies over and over and over again whereas mm-hmm. you don't don't really I guess don't get that the same way anymore apart from something that's a real big event like maybe avengers endgame for example yeah. i don't think there's many yeah. there's many things i mean it's strange isn't it how there was three big comedies that year and we only talk about two oh, of them. at least it's true well, yeah, at no, least, I, yeah. It was a, yeah it was a very very good year for comedy i think um well, I think apart from anything else, it was, you know, not everybody at that point had a VCR player mm. um, and, and you know, VHS was kind of in its early days. So for a lot of film fans, if you wanted to see something more than once, you had to go see it in the cinema or you'd be waiting years to see it on TV. And and there wasn't this this thing of, oh, it'll be, it'll be out in three months, which we have now. You know, there's not the same urgency, I think. So, so yeah, that's definitely changed. But, but yeah, you wouldn't want to go up against Ghostbusters. I mean, that thing was a behemoth. But people didn't know that in advance. You know, it was a risk. It was something that they weren't quite sure was going to work. So, you know, it's one of those difficult things in programming where you you don't quite know what your competition is going to be until you see it. So, yeah, and I think I would imagine that Top Secret was one of those films that, if in the old days when you went to a video shop, you'd probably see the cover and go, "Oh yeah, that, that looks quite good." And then you and then you'd watch it, which I think was the kind of um, behind a lot of the successes of those '80s movies, particularly, and then into the '90s where. They weren't big successes, but have become big successes because of home video. I mean, you know, I, I, I always look, I was, I'm always, I've always been obsessed with like the video nasties and about all this stuff back then when, not to go off on a tangent, yeah. but about how video was at that time. And you kind of think, well, video was like, it, that was the big thing in those days. Whereas now VHS and all that stuff is kind of, you know, people, uh, <laughs> people just say to any 10, 12, 14, 16 year old now, like, what's VHS? This is really low grade, <laughs> really low quality. It's like, well, yeah, that's how you had to see it. I always used to like when I was a kid of having to record the films off the telly because it would be mm-hmm. quite an event. Oh, yeah, so of course. I, I yeah, talked yeah, about yeah, it before where like when Star Wars was on, it was only on the one time at Christmas. Yeah. And then you'd have to wait a whole year or maybe two to ever, ever see it again on the telly. Whereas I think we talked about Shaun of the Dead and uh, Sophie, who I had on, was saying about how Shaun of the Dead's on like every other week. <laughs> You could just, if you haven't seen Shaun of the Dead, you could just watch it on ITV2. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a good problem to have. But yeah, you're right. They, they, they go through these phases, especially sort of the ITV2s and Channel 5s tend to have a certain number of films on rotation, it seems like. Uh, so yeah, I think there's there's an element of that. I think it probably did do better on on 
you know, home video. Um, in the same way that like some films just don't find their audience immediately. Like mm. I'm still convinced that generations from now or people are going to be watching Booksmart and no one's going to remember that it was a, a sort of a flop at the at the box office, but it kind of was, you know, mm. but I think it's going to have legs. It's going to stand up because it's just so completely delightful. Batman Begins did not on its box office guarantee that the Dark Knight would happen. It was the fact that it kind of hit and find more of an audience on on DVD. Uh, so there's always room for the, the audience to find the film later, I think. And, and that kind of, that's what a lot of films, that's when a lot of films become profitable. They don't become, you know, cinema is kind of a loss leader and then it's down the line that you make your money. I think that's, uh, I remember listening to Kevin Smith's podcast and that's one of the things he quite likes about his films in the sense that even if they don't do very well at the box, he knows that there'll be at least a portion of his audience that will seek it out if they haven't seen it before or go back exactly. and see it again. And that's where a lot of his films go into profit. It's not about the cinema. Um, Top Secret is one of those. You know, was, you look back at the box office in terms of, a, I mean, you look at something that costs $8 million to make and it grows to $20 million. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not, not the worst thing in the world, but when Ghostbusters is making hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and is number one week after week yes you would say it was a yeah, flop but yeah. it's produced by Paramount as well and Paramount obviously you know big big studio you know and put their in those days as well put their money very studios put their money in very specific places didn't they, they didn't yeah um, yeah it just throw money around like they do, <laughs> do these days <laughs> oh um, I don't think they do <laughs> well We'll see. Uh, but uh, unless you're Netflix, Netflix seems to have uh, oh, yeah, they, they a, a bottomless pot, sure. pot of money since they're buying everything. <laughs> but I mean, just finally on Top Secret, I mean, I, I spoke about this on a podcast you may or may not have listened to yet. I'm not sure if it would have been up by now. I think it might have been. But the lost art of the spoof movie, lost mm -hmm. art of Dead Days Dead. I mean, they didn't make a hell of a lot of movies, but I think that's kind of good in the sense they didn't kind of go back to the world so many times and mm -hmm. why they're films have endured so much do you do you, th do you think there's a reason why we don't get the spoof stuff anymore do you think audiences are kind of past they want something a little bit smarter than than this yeah being kind of in the 80s and 90s i think the problem with the spoofs that we had before they have died for the moment is that they weren't really stupid like and not stupid in a good way stupid in a bad way so the, the thing about this film and the thing about airplane um well, this airplane very much riffs on a particular film and a particular form of film, but then it goes off and does crazy stuff with that film. So it really kind of pushes and pushes and pushes. Even when it's lifting dialogue, the fact that it's playing that dialogue straight in amid the absurdity is what makes it funny. Um, but but the, it adds so much absurdity. And that film was workshopped within an inch of its life. You know, they toured it around college campuses for something like certainly months, if not a year. And, and chucked out anything that didn't get a huge laugh. Like they they must have chopped down, to, you know, to ribbons what they originally had because they, they've they ended up with this lean, mean gag machine. What is it, 237 jokes in 89 minutes or something? It's insane. Yeah. So, and with this, they're not riffing on a specific film so much, but they are very much riffing on specific moments that you recognize from a genre. And they're doing it really, really well. And again, it feels like they have honed and honed and honed the gags and only kept the ones that made them all laugh all the time. The problem with stuff like the scary movie franchise and all those epic movies and not another teen movies and all these kind of stuff is they would just play entire scenes pretty much verbatim and wouldn't make them funny. They weren't funny. And there's no reason why they shouldn't have been funny. 
they have good people in those movies who we know are capable of humor they just couldn't find it and 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 those films really like i it just by the time you know they they died i think we were all just sick reviewing them like you just went to see them with a heavy heavy heart because you're like it's just it's just not going to be funny Mm. And there's nothing clever, actually, about just replaying entire scenes that we've seen done by more expensive actors. You need to bring something to that. And, and that's what the Zaz movies did. And that's what the, the recent era of spoofs just have not at all done. So I think, I think the spoof could come back to life in an instant. You just need somebody really, really good to bring it back. Yeah. And I think it was probably a case, you tell me if I'm wrong, some of the later movies from those guys who did um epic movies superhero movie and stuff yeah, and they yeah. were probably those kind of movies that weren't screened very much for critics etc oh god no no definitely not i no. can kind of get the sense especially as they dwindled and dwindled into just well beyond absurd like they were absurd just the nature of them was absurd rather than the movies themselves you know i can imagine it was yeah. you know like it was some... just like the, Sorry, I mean, the, you know th this this film is not sort of disciplined in the way the airplane was and, and mm. i think that's one of the reasons that that Zaz themselves aren't so happy with it. It does kind of take pot shots around at various other genres and sort of throw things in. But it's pretty funny when it does. The problem with this, the you know later scary movies and the and all those ones that followed is they would just throw random stuff in that had nothing to do with the genre they were spoofing and they wouldn't make it funny enough for you to kind of laugh off that absurdity because otherwise they'd be taking these whole scenes wholesale and playing them pretty straight and you're like well this doesn't work at all whereas this is so absurd all the way through that if they do spin off into another genre for a minute you're like I mean that's just another bit of the absurdity okay I'm kind of still with you but it's a really difficult thing to do and I think the only reason this film gets away with it is because it's hilarious mm. like it's it it shouldn't in a lot of ways and I do acknowledge that but I I just love it to death yeah, same. I think also with some of those movies, because Leslie Nielsen was in some of those later movies, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. In his in his twilight of his career. In that if you watch most of those movies, they try to get him to say funny things and for him to be funny when that's maybe I never saw him be funny in those movies because they were trying to make him the art of him being him was that as we said before, he was kind of being straight and getting it to, to yeah. perform in a certain way. Whereas underplaying it, yeah. In those in those movies, there are it's, it's being overplayed for for yeah. to make sure they get laughs. And most of the time, you don't get a laugh because it's just there's so much pressure. They're, they're trying so hard to get a laugh, but you just don't. You get one, but it's probably not the one you want. It's probably the the laugh of uh, yeah, <laughs> something. Um, it's like if I laugh, will you stop doing this now? Can I can I go if I laugh? Well, is that is that what I need to do to, for you to yeah, stop? Okay, yeah. I'll do that. I can all, I can just picture in my head uh, uh, when Peter Kay takes Mickey out of his wife on the phone to her sister and his stand up and he does that laugh. It's like like a sarcastic laugh. I presume <laughs> some of the critic screenings for those last ones were like ah funny or <sighs> or uh, yeah other bits in between. Uh, mm. don't, they don't make them like they used to. Through lots <laughs> of things in Hollywood, this is definitely one of them uh, if you've never seen top secret i urge you to go and see it i think it's mm. on one of the i think it's on amazon prime at the moment obviously that changes from time to time and at the time of this recording there is a paramount streaming service on the horizon so this being paramount you might want to watch it before it gets taken away or of course go and get some physical media that's always good. yeah it's find, it on, it. it's, find it on it's vhs so if you can you might get all the cool little trailers <laughs> at the beginning and you know 
<laughs> and and you know if our description of the film makes no sense to you and you think it sounds completely incomprehensible that's right yes Some that's money. correct we haven't even mentioned the cows you know so there's so much more for you to discover there yeah we've left some in there for you to discover but uh yeah our our talking about the movie is on par with the movie itself which is kind of good which is kind of good i think but yeah there's things to discover cows for you to go and find out what that word means <laughs> <laughs> oh dear anyway let's move on to our second film now we are coming up into the modern day once again mm -hmm. to 2016 uh, and actually, we talked there about Booksmart, coming of age story yeah. for, for the even more modern era. And the one we're going to talk about is kind of, I would say, in the same ballpark in terms of its quality and mm -hmm. uh, is another one that is particularly underseen, I think. I don't think too many people have sought this out, at least when it first came out. Before we do, here is a quick clip from the second film we're going to talk about. I am an old soul. I like old music and old movies and old, even old people. Bottom line is I have nothing in common with the people out there and they have nothing in common with me. Yeah, Maybe. so on that note, a $9 million budget, this only $18 million at the box office. Maybe. You know, double your money, but uh, Nobody likes uh, definitely but like... No. Because you only get about half your box office. Well, yes. I mean, yeah, on paper, you double your money, but you don't. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, very similar to Booksmart and very similar to Top Secret that we spoke about before. Uh, it's another kind of disappointment, but a film that deserves legs and legs beyond its years in terms of in 10 years time might be something that people talked about. It is The Edge of 17, the uh, directorial debut of Kelly Fremont Craig and starring multi-talented Hayley Steinfeld, the multi-talented Woody Harrelson, the multi-talented Kyra Cedric, and the multi-talented Hayley Lee Richardson. Fantastic cast, <laughs> just those four alone. Yeah. I haven't even mentioned all the others. Amazing cast and amazing cast, particularly Hayley Steinfeld and Hayley Richardson, who were kind of blossoming into their fledgling careers. And they both got on mm. to do some amazing work uh, since Hayley Steinfeld, of course, as some of you might know, is playing Kate in Hawkeye, but uh, yeah. Well, another day on something else. Everyone's, everyone's <laughs> going to Marvel. Who hasn't signed for Marvel yet? The day when Tom Cruise signs for Marvel, it's like, well, that's it. Everybody's on off the list. <laughs> Let's go back around. Can't be Ooh. that far away now. He can do his own stunts as literally any of them as well. So they'll save a fortune in CGI. It'll be brilliant. Yeah. Or they could just get one of these deep fake guys to just put him in oh, yeah. as, as Iron Man, like he was rumored all those years <laughs> ago, and just, just make the same film. Um, Edge of 17. Uh, yeah, a, fa a fantastic film, which I recently, uh, as we record this podcast, watched a couple of hours ago, so it's nice and fresh in my brain. And I'd forgotten, and I always do this when it happens, it's very rare this happens, but it's produced by Gracie Films, which is James L. Brooks, from, uh, James L. Brooks and Richard Sakai. The only reason I mention them is because their logo pops up at the end of The Simpsons. It's mm -hmm. the lady that goes, shh, does the little bit, nah, 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 nah. and I, I wanted the fox, for a second my brain was like, where's the fox logo? Oh wait, I'm not watching The Simpsons. <laughs> I'm not watching Spanglish. Um, but Edge of 17, we talked about Booksmart there about kind of its place in the modern world and it talked, you know, about modern teenage years coming of age and the pressures yeah. that everybody is under these days. As good as Booksmart is, I, I don't think this is too far. Well, I think this is mm. almost as good in terms of yeah. what it does. Um, and this would have been a film I presume you we well, I would have seen and you would have seen in kind of film critic career. So did you 
Did you get a sense of the buzz around this early or was it something you just saw at a, at a screening and just excited to see? Uh, I, I think I'd heard a little bit of buzz just because it's very much in my sort of wheelhouse and, you know, mm. I follow a lot of feminist film critics on Twitter oh. uh, who were talking about this kind of thing. And because it's still quite unusual because the, the driving relationship in this film is so Nadine is Hayley Steinfeld's character and she's this kind of awkward, prickly angry teenager who has precisely one friend that's Krista played by Hayley Lou Richardson and when Krista starts dating Nadine's brother Darian she just completely goes into a, a tailspin about it and and just feels completely rejected and alone in the world and and everything else and it's quite a relatable thing you know maybe we we were not quite so short of friends as as Nadine is in this film and maybe we weren't quite such let's be honest, assholes about it. But we've all been through something similar. We've all been through that kind of upheaval with a friend at some point in our lives. We've all felt betrayed by somebody at some point in our lives. And I think it's really good that it's a film that deals with female friendship well, which is still a very rare thing. We have a lot of buddy movies, but they are 95% probably about male buddies. And this is kind of driven by a, a female friendship, even though there's a lot of male characters around that are very important to the to the story. So I just I think that's still kind of rare to see. I think it's still really important to to tell those stories. And I think this one's really well done because Nadine is uh, a horrendously good character. Like she's awful. Like she is genuinely pretty terrible. She treats people very badly. But it's coming from a place of hurt. It's coming from a place of love, uh, of loss and love, I suppose. And it's coming from, a, you know, a sense that she just has no clue what she's doing. She just doesn't know. One of my favourite genres of film is smart people being smart. You know, those kind of heist movies like Ocean's Eleven, great smart people being smart movie. But I also quite like smart people being stupid movies. Uh, and this is one of those. This is a This is a girl who is very bright, her, you know, the, the dialogue in this film is fantastic, but she's also super stupid in so many ways that matter. And, and it's kind of a, a coming of age story, I guess, and a lot of that and, and learning to get past her own bullshit in a way that is incredibly relatable and very, very entertaining to watch. I just love yeah. it. Yeah, me too. I think you're right in terms of the, the female, obviously we talked about Booksmart just before about the female kind of friendship of this, that, you know, both of the characters at the beginning when they first meet each other are kind of you know they're kids that don't have a lot of friends so yeah. that that relationship particularly with with um with males and with, with females per se when you, you cling on to that one friend that's your that's probably your best friend throughout your whole life you know when you make that bond at seven eight nine that's the like the, the friend you have for life and you go through all that stuff together you mm. discover about boys and all that kind of stuff through through life and I think it's it's so well done with that but yeah, the strange thing that it's almost very destabilizing, isn't it? The the relationship in that after they do so many things together, because they're both kind of awkward and on the sidelines a bit. You know, they're not popular kids or anything yeah. like that. They're kind of smart, I guess, but well, they are smart, but yeah, making bad decisions, particularly Nadine's character. Um, and then they become good friends, and you think, oh, that's they've found each other. You know, they're kind of yeah, in amongst all of now. the yeah, everything's fine. And you know, as you say, Nadine's character is dealing with a great loss. You know. Uh, well, I don't think to say her dad dies in the first mm -hmm. in the first sort of 15 minutes of the film so it's kind of the film bounces off of that have that and then have one person who you could maybe particularly when her relationship with her mother's kind of fractured as well because of what's yeah. happened in their in their past and with her brother that she clings to that friendship and when that friendship becomes it's almost like she 
um, Hayley Richardson's character swaps sides, doesn't she? It's like she's yeah, exactly. now against her when that's not the point at all. It just happens to eventually, I guess, fall in love with her, her brother. It wasn't something that they, you know, they talked about beforehand. It was it not a conspiracy. So, yeah, it's not a conspiracy, <laughs> but it's almost like that's why a lot of her anger becomes even yeah. greater because it's almost like the person she trusts the most in the world has joined the other side, which is the <laughs> side that's always telling her to do and and you know that she should you know look at her feelings and kind of be a little bit more um understanding about everybody mm -hmm. else around her rather than because she talks a lot in the movie about her characteristic the characteristic that she has that maybe doesn't which doesn't want completely is that she always kind of thinks everything revolves around her when it really doesn't and she talks mm -hmm. about that through the movie that she's so kind of conflict with everything that's going on she doesn't see the bigger picture at all whether it's you know the little the the, the guy what's the guy's name Erwin Kim mm -hmm. the little kind of guy that she meets an awkward guy who's awkward around women uh who I find a kind of common friendship with and the way that she says these jokes you know that kind of he thinks she likes her but actually she's kind of using him for the wrong reasons but actually she won't admit that she likes him but she decides to go yeah. for the hunky other guy who she likes that's probably going to be an absolute jerk and transpires that he's an absolute jerk and just wants to get in her pants so she's kind of navigating a lot of stuff but a lot of it is as you say it's from the anger and the kind of the, the loss of her dad and she feels a lot of guilt with that because when he passes she's in the car with him so she mm -hmm. kind of has a deep-seated guilt or she thinks it's her fault when in actual fact he has a has a heart attack so there's a lot there's a lot going on but you say that female friendship it's nice to see that's refreshing to see that rather than two dudes going after women or two dudes kind mm. of like super bad for example that was the thing we when we talked yep. about book smart super bad was it was book smart is super bad for girls and it's like it's not really super bad at all super bad there's a lot of stuff going on in super bad that's good but it's it is co-written by seth rogan so there is a kind of there's a mentality to it that's a little bit different to Booksmart and I like the kind of frayed edges of Booksmart and the frayed edges of Edge of 17 and that life isn't hunky-dory especially in high school high school if you want a, a high school that's a bit magical go and watch high school musical because it's not like that the experience <laughs> the experience of high school I mean it's obviously slightly different for us in the UK hey, but we still go through all that stuff but even in high school musical they're dealing with the real real concern that you should be able to be more than one thing and not be you know it's, it's got a very great message there high school musical well, I'm gonna stick uh, up for that uh, we're all I've in this together you know. I've never seen it, so maybe that, that's me, me being. You see, need, that's me putting yeah. it in a. That's me putting it in there a you box. Go. I apologize. <laughs> I have Disney Plus now. There's no. There's no excuse. No, and I no tell excuse. you what, High School Musical, the musical, the show is actually very funny. So I'm just saying, but you have to have seen High School Musical first. There's a show called High School Musical, the musical, the, musical, the show. show, the show, the musical, the musical the show. Oh. I forget the order, but yeah. So it's basically it, the idea of that. I'm sorry, this is all on a tangent. The idea of High School Musical, the musical, the show is that the school where High School Musical was filmed decides to put on a musical version of High School Musical. Is it directed? Here's a question. Is it directed by Christopher Nolan? Because it sounds a little bit. <laughs> it's basically Tenet for teens. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. That's a good poster because Tenet, you can spell teen out of Tenet. So that's kind of, there you that's go. Kind of very knowing. Very true. I've never seen High School Musical. I maybe should do a podcast. It's, on it's it or genuinely something. not terrible. I'm not saying it's good, but it is not bad. I, I enjoyed it. For I do what like, it is, it's fun. I do. I had the same thing with Greatest Showman in terms of that. I wasn't that interested in it, but usually it's my mum or my sister or someone who says, please just sit and watch it. And I sat and watched The Greatest Showman. I didn't dislike it. So mm. 
maybe I won't dislike musical. Anyway, um, yeah, but I, I do like the kind of, as I say, the frayed edges of, of the life depicted in these movies because yeah. it's like Olivia Wilde always talked about when they did the, the movie and also there's that love scene which we talked about on the podcast before how that is usually how most people's first experience of sex or something like that is. It's fumbly, it's not like it is in the movies and to show mm. that is very, very good. I think Edge of Seventeen does that as well. I think it's amazing that it starts with Hayley Steinfeld's character bursting into a teacher's office and saying, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> a teacher played by the great Woody Harrelson, who is amazing. In he's yeah, so, he's so, so funny. So, so good. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think it deserves a lot more for its due than, it, than, it, than it's... I mean, I don't think it's been... It's not something that's been not critically... Oh, no, it's been critically acclaimed. Everyone yes. seems to have liked it over the years. So... Just like Booksmart, just didn't quite find its audience. Yeah. But maybe now that it's on Netflix and stuff, I think it's one of those films that I'm sure if you went through social media, you'd probably find, oh, I've just discovered this film, Edge of 17. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Hayley Seinfeld has a big audience because of her music. Yeah, career. really big following. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, Woody Harrelson, by the way, is is just hilarious in this because I think when you have this very cynical, angry, um, outrageous teen, you need someone to balance her. And she keeps going for help to this authority figure, his kind of English teacher. And he is just having none of it and kind of calls her on her bullshit frequently and also is just having none of her drama, you know, just mm. keeps kind of diffusing the situation again and again. But he does have real compassion for her at the end of the day. And I think that's what's key, but, but he doesn't necessarily show it up front because it would only fuel her love of melodrama and her sort of self-obsession at that point, her, her kind of myopia. Um, yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's great in this. He's so good. I love the balance in that because in, in not many, it's nice to have the balance because you're not in, the, not many movies you would get a teacher that if someone says they're going to kill themselves, he's got a bit of paper in his hand and he says, oh yeah, I've just, I've just found my suicide note. Let me just read it. <laughs> Something, something, something. I enjoy the piece of lunch I get once a day, once an hour every day, or something. So he's just throwing it back, not in a nasty way, but he's trying mm -hmm. to trying to help her out of her out of her out of her grief and out of her loss in his strange kind of way. Because if he gave yeah. her exactly what she wanted, she wouldn't learn. She wouldn't get out of a thing. And he knows that she's a smart enough girl to do it herself. So maybe she needs to say the opposite. There's mm -hmm. a great scene in it where she says, "Oh, I didn't do my homework because my dad died." And he's like, "Oh no, when did your dad die?" 2011 <laughs> he looks around the calendar and it's like 2016 he's like oh i'm sorry yeah i'm sorry i, I have a one-year ex expiration policy yeah on but then he has the, then he has the goal to say but you know your grandparents probably won't be around for much longer so <laughs> you might have a couple more <laughs> but it's that it's that it's the wonderful kind of play between them that he knows to help her get out of that he needs to play that you know he's, he, he's not her parent or anything like that he's not mm -hmm. there to tell her what to do or anything he's there as a teacher and sometimes you know, as they say, teacher knows best sometimes that he yeah, plays yeah. the opposite and doesn't fuel her anger anymore. He tries to play it off of her and be like, yeah. almost like he's shaking, trying to shake her out of it and say, you need to just look at, again, look at the bigger picture because you're mm. not seeing the bigger picture at the moment. And there's, that, there's a great scene at the end where he talks to her in the car and uh, he says, look, and it, you know, you almost know that what speech is coming. You know what he's going to say and Woody Howard's his character says, look, I know I'm not very good at what to say here, but you know, we all know what I'm going to say. So I'm just going to say it. Get out of the car. Get out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's such a great thing. But I think the, that relationship, as well as her relationship with her mum, her brother, and her, mm -hmm. her best friend, in this kind of circle around her, and obviously Irving Kim, who becomes kind of her yeah. admirer and 
likes her and i guess the suggestion at the end of the movie is there's something you kind of hope that there's something there and all of these people in the circle around her between them take her out of her uh, what was the word you used it sounded too smart for me oh what myopia oh no, i just myopia. mean like, well, self self-obsession really it's, it's not just short-sightedness yeah but um but she's not seeing any further than the end of her nose that's for sure yeah absolutely um the Hayley Steinfeld is uh, she's obviously a lot of people know her more for her music career. She hasn't made a mm. obviously Pitch Perfect is very much in keeping with her music career. Yeah, but I remember seeing Bumble her. In yes, absolutely. I remember seeing her in True Grit, and it was one of those Incredible. you know those performances. Uh, yeah, very similar to the girl. Life we can't remember her name. The girl that's in News of the World and was in Sister Helena Bradshaw. Zengel. Yeah, one of those performances where you just think, oh my, just you can't yeah. take your eyes off this you know teenagers yeah. or child she was obviously what only 10 or yeah 11. she was 12 i think at that point yeah she was no she's astonishing in that film that film i just so i like lo- i love the coen brothers anyway but that film i came out of absolutely bouncing i was just like this is my favorite i think it was my favorite film of that year i think i did put it number one on my list but it was just it's an astonishing film it's so beautifully done she's incredible in it as you say and the score ah, oh, carter burwell score it's amazing love it yeah, I think for my co- my my Cohen brothers on my side was when I saw Inside Lewin Davis for the first time at LFS. Oh, amazing! It's one of those films that came out. Was, yeah, bouncing off the walls in delight. Yeah, just yeah. I can't believe someone's made that film. It's almost know, like they just made it for me. Um, but she's she's a wonderful performer, and she's one of those that obviously started very young. And you kind of think, mm. what do you find along the way? You know, sometimes these these younger actors don't find the form, don't get the work mm-hmm. they do. But she's she's really cleverly picked her roles isn't she between music and obviously she's really good in dickinson as well the apple yeah really good apple yeah. tv show um, she's fantastic in this film isn't she? oh she's she's incredible i think she's a, she's a really really talented actress i feel like she's still waiting for you know a role worthy of that promise in true grace you know yeah. i think that there, there has been a little bit of a um she's never done anything that great since and i don't think that's an insult to say because i think her role in true grace is incredible but um but this is probably the best, like mm. most strenuous acting role actually that she has had outside of True Grit. You know, she's really charming in Bumblebee and it's actually not a dissimilar character in terms of being a bereaved teenager who's kind of struggling to deal with her own family. But um, but this one is is definitely better than Bumblebee. And I like Bumblebee, no shade, uh, but it's this is definitely better. And I think I think we're still waiting for something just that really really shows her potential and really really shows what she can do so i hope she finds it because i think she's phenomenal absolutely incredible yeah let's transformers from bumblebee i'd argue it's, maybe, uh, maybe. Trans- i did like the first transformers i really i'm good. a big yeah. defender of the first one so yeah. but it's yeah, there's those two and then there's a really really big space <laughs> really big space chasm. yeah yeah and then there's the others yeah and it's it's i terribly ironic that we get so many se- disposable sequels of Transformers yet when the good one comes along we haven't got nobody went close to us no yeah. went to see it yeah. and we don't get a sequel to the good one so and I mean is- it, you know similarly I mean Kelly Fremont Craig who wrote and directed this uh, apparently I think did a rewrite on Bumblebee at some point I don't know if, how much of her work we see on screen uh, and she's been doing rewrites and things that haven't been made. But I mean, Hollywood, what are you doing? You're sleeping on her. This is insane. This has been five years now since this film came out. Mm. I know it wasn't a huge hit at the box office, but I mean, you know, neither was safety not guaranteed. And you saw the potential there and you saw yeah. the talent there and mm. you gave that dude a big, big movie. 
you need to do the same with this woman. I mean, I'm losing faith here, but yeah, Kelly Fremont Craig, she needs to be making some more films pretty damn quick because I think this, as a calling card, as a first movie as, dire as director, this is a, a real, real sign of talent. And yeah. and yeah, I can't wait to see what she does next. Yeah, for sure. I was actually going to say that. And I, I, before you said that, obviously another one I would say, just because you just said, but safe's not guaranteed and yeah. Colin, Colin Trevorrow. Um, I love Short Term 12 and Daniel Biston Prince. Oh, God, Jack yeah. D. So you're right. Yeah. Come on, Hollywood. Pull your... Come on, she Hollywood. Doesn't, she doesn't, <laughs> it's not like we're just saying to her, hey, Marv, we'll give her a job. It's like, we just give her, let her make another, this is her baby. It's a very, yeah. I mean, people have got further in Hollywood with worse calling with much less. than this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. No question. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a discussion there for about your book. For a book, your, maybe. A, a book. book. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. But she's a real talent. It's the way, I like the way that she, her dialogue is so snappy. So sharp. So yeah. wonderful. That you just think it would be one of those where someone would be banging on her door to make another, just like mm -hmm. that film. I loved it. Which, you know, there's a lot, so many people out there who make independent films and they jump onto the next one, and, but they want to stay grounded and make everything else. Not everyone wants to jump from, like I say, jump from something like this to going to make, um, you know, like Chloe Zhao has made Eternals, but yeah. she's made, she, she's made a few films, you know, and people should go and yeah. see her films, you know? Um, and she is hopefully about to break a record. But yeah, I, I talk about calling cards. There's no caller and mm. a more amazing calling card than this. And the fact that she's not done anything since apart from rewrite, rewrite work. I mean, obviously people got work, of course. But sure. Yeah, I'd be banging down the door. Seriously, yeah. yeah. Come get on at Hollywood. I know you're listening, Hollywood. So, yeah, you're uh, listening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should write a book. I think there's a book idea somewhere. Um, yeah, I could call it Women versus Hollywood. It'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, someone's written that book already. Oh, oh no, no, that's no, no, no. That's me thinking about. Uh, I'm getting confused because your book's green, and the other book I bought, Matthew McConaughey's book, is called Green Lights. I was getting confused. Oh. Green. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I love that dude. Anyway, uh, another person I wanted to mention, and I, mm. uh, another fantastic, oh, Woody Harrelson, red, yeah. red, fantastic. Hayley Richardson is someone mm. I really, really admire, more so because she's not only in this film, she was in, and again, another film that not many people have seen called Columbus, which is a film I absolutely mm. adored, and she is so incredible in that film. But she's mm. another one that, I guess, similar to Amy Steinfeld, that's Maybe she, you know there is a next step for her. Maybe there's yeah. a few people in this, this film itself has a few people in it that deserve the next step and are still waiting on it. And she she in this film is fantastic as well. But again, I haven't seen her for a while. Like not saying again, not yeah. saying oh I haven't seen her in this two hundred and fifty million dollar movie. I mean I haven't seen her in <laughs> something as challenging, as thoughtful, and yeah. you know um, extraordinary as as this. But she's another fantastic talent, isn't she? Yeah, she she really is, and she's she's just so warm and so likable in this, which I think you need as the balance to Nadine's character, and you need it because you kind of get their friendship, you kind of get their um, dynamic. Because quite frankly, Nadine needs somebody who is a sounding board for all her many many opinions, and who has quite a large degree of tolerance, and sort of is fairly easygoing. So it is a sort of uh, a friendship of of uh, of opposites in some ways but but at the same time it's a friendship that you can believe it's not one of these kind of cartoonish sets of opposites like clearly there's a little bit of of snark in Krista as well and that's why she loves Nadine and she loves the fact that Nadine will say the things that she's maybe a little bit too shy and reserved to say so you get that and then it also gives you 
it also allows you to see why the why uh, the brother, uh, like Jenner's character, the Darian, would fall for Krista because she has that compassion that he's kind of missing because, you know, he's not really getting looked after. He's looking mm. after his mum a lot of the time. She's relying on him for comfort rather than the reverse. Nadine is essentially missing in action as far as he's concerned. She's not giving him really anything. And so you can see that he would absolutely need someone who is as warm and as caring as this. You can see it in they're sort of not quite meet cute because obviously they've met many times over the years but that kind of moment where they start looking at each other differently is when she comes downstairs and is helping him clear up after a party because no one else would do that and he's the guy who has to be responsible so it's it's a really beautifully drawn kind of dynamic between those three kids that i think really fuels the whole film i mean this is what i'm saying she's a really talented writer hollywood come on get on the kelly freeman craig train this is this is great yeah, let's let's start the train going again. A very, like you say, a very difficult dynamic to get right. It could have quite easily not worked and gone astray and, and not been as kind of the focus that it does. But oh, a really really well character, well written character. It's kind of Jonathan Ross then for a second. And um, <laughs> but between them, the, you say the chemistry and the relationships between them are all relationships that they almost like you say they need, don't they? You know, they all need each other. Yeah. They seem split, and including Parasetric, who plays a mum, they all seem split. The obvious thing is that they should all be pulling together, but they're not. And obviously, everyone deals with grief very, very differently. I remember uh, in Scrubs, when uh, Laverne dies, if you ever watch Scrubs, you but listening audiences, and there's a bit where uh, Carlo is upset because nobody's upset. Why are people not mm -hmm. upset? You can't tell people how to grieve. Everyone grieves yeah. differently. If someone wants to go and make jokes that's fine if someone wants to go and cry in a corner for a day that's fine too and everything in yeah. between but well this you know this is it this is why you know sometimes funerals are really laugh filled affairs you know mm. that's a way to deal with it and that's a way to remember the person and that's a way to process you know what you don't have for a moment and yeah it's it's a human reaction i think i think it sometimes comes across i was talking about this to someone recently that you know it can come across on screen as a complete screaming change of tone if you have somebody you know cracking quips after there's a death and and, and the thing is i think it's actually quite realistic it, it can seem unrealistic it can seem callous mm. but it's 100 percent human i think and and so th that's really well dealt with again in this i think just the fact that they're all struggling and they're not really able to talk about it is is right and true and not easy and not pat but very very appropriate yeah 100 percent. and again linking it back to book tomorrow again it shows the frayed edges of life you know mm. you, you you grieve different everyone grieves differently and yes some people make, make jokes but then that person who made jokes you might find a week later sobbing their eyes out but that's that's Absolutely. okay that's that's yeah. and the opposite someone who's quiet their eyes out for two or three weeks might find a day where they watch something or see something or you know someone shows them a funny youtube video and it helps to you know break yeah. the break the cycle as it were in some strange ways but i think that's a really really both films really really well at showing life you know life mm. life life isn't you know there's team if you want it there's team movies out there that are very uplifting and very upbeat and stuff like that and they're all good and this this one is as well but uh, mm. i think uh, yeah kelly freeman craig we're gonna i'm gonna tweet you when this when this comes out and tweet helen and we can start your train going hopefully and absolutely or you can come on my podcast if not we'll talk about <laughs> edge of 17 together that's that's fine that's fine by me um but yeah edge of 17 then that's uh it's a fantastic film if you've not seen it it is on netflix so you know before 
the world starts to fingers crossed reopen take oh. a couple of hours and uh, sit and watch it if you haven't already it's one of those films Absolutely. on netflix that hopefully the netflix algorithms have gone hey since you like this you might like this if you watch book smart you watch that's a double bill they're right there that is a hundred percent that'd be a great double bill Anyway, yes, thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of Those Aren't Pillows. You can follow us on Twitter at PillowsPod. You can follow me at Scott Wright's Film. And you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere in between. We have a little link tree on our Twitter page, so you can follow it uh, on there, although it seems that Spotify is the... Anyway, yes, thank you so much for joining us, and I will see you next week for another episode of Those Aren't Pillows. Thanks, Helen, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.